0: Thank you um, for the opportunity that we have to look back at the pivotal moment of history when you chose to do the most selfless act of sacrificing your son. Jesus, we thank you for taking on that role of being our sacrifice. We can't imagine, very literally could never imagine, what all of that meant. But well, we do pray, Father, that you would direct our attention and direct our hearts to the significance of that sacrifice for us. And I, Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Grace is giving someone what they do not deserve. You've probably heard that it's technically different from mercy in that mercy is not giving them what they do deserve, but grace is giving someone what they do not deserve. I've appreciated the acronym that I think I've shared before here, that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. So the grace that we have from God available to us upon receiving Christ as our Savior, upon receiving that gift of salvation, is what Ephesians calls um, the riches of God in Christ. God's riches given to us, God's surpassing riches given to us at Christ's Expense. And we're going to be looking today at what was this expense? What did it cost Christ for us to be able to have available to us the grace of salvation? Christ's sacrifice was necessary because of our sin. Sin could be described as everything that we do, think, or say that does not measure up to God's perfect, righteous standard. In a sense, it's also not doing, thinking, or saying what God would do at any given moment. I mean, think of it that way. Wherever we fall short in not doing, or thinking, or saying what God would do, in His righteousness, in His purity. That is sin. I mean, I I don't know if I go a moment without that. And yet, any single one of those instances is enough for me not to measure up to God's righteous standard and thus be in need of being given what I don't deserve in order to have a relationship with him. Today we're looking at what a word of the atonement. The, w- when we look at the person and work of Christ in his life and his death, in the purchase of our salvation... They can be summed up in the term, the atonement. Now, the atonement is a very um, gracious word. A lot of scripture's uh, versions put this as the propitiation. I mean, so, uh, we're, we're, we're pretty good with the atonement. The propitiation is a little bit harder, right? But we've actually talked before about what the propitiation is. Uh, the, the idea is to make God propitious to us. Does that make it easier? No. We've actually talked about the idea before that propitiation prior to being used in the New Testament when it comes to Christ and his sacrifice, that propitiation was used in uh, pagan religious settings in which the deity was angry and had turned away from the worshipper. And in pagan religions, they treated worship as a means by which to give the deity enough things or, or enough uh, homage or worship in order to cause that deity to then turn its face again to the worshipper and say, oh, well, I guess you're not that bad. Is there something I can do for you? And as we looked at this in Colossians, it's amazing the use of this term to say that God in Christ Jesus made propitiation for us. Meaning, God himself sacrificed himself in order to turn his own face back toward us again. So that our worship as followers of Christ is not in hopes that He would love us, but in response to His grace and His love. And so we're using the more, maybe not understandable, but the more... uh, favorable or or helpful term of atonement which basically means propitiation. Uh, As people we may have kind of unrighteous means by which someone can earn our favor again. Maybe they might flatter us or praise us. Um, They might give us something that we want. But God is not motivated as we are he is motivated by his glory and by his attributes. He's motivated by his glory because God is not an idolater. He has no other gods before himself. And in recognition of who he is, he seeks after his glory. And we worship him in thankfulness that it most glorified him to make a way for some in this world to have a relationship with Him by His grace. So the atonement is the work of Christ to secure salvation for us. God was not required to make a way for us to have a relationship with Him. God chose to make a way for us to have a relationship with Him. And upon choosing to make a way for us to have a relationship with Him, at that point, the sacrifice of His Son was required. And I want to explain that a little bit today. Upon choosing to make a way for us to have a relationship with Him, to overcome. The chasm of sin, of our sin, between us and him, upon choosing to make that way, the sacrifice of his son was then a necessity. Christ describes this when he's, taught, when he's walking along the road to Emmaus with, this, with some of his followers and the situation was that, maybe you're aware of it, it's after his resurrection and somehow I guess his features are maybe disguised in a way or maybe there's a hood involved or something like that, that they didn't recognize who he was, even though they were some of his followers. And he starts to explain to them, they're downtrodden by what has gone on in Jerusalem in the death of Christ, and they're, and they're confused by this. And he starts to explain this, and he says, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? So he he makes the statement, Don't you know the Messiah had to suffer? It had to be this way. And then it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So we're kind of hitting on a few lists here this morning. We're approaching the atonement in terms of what is the theology behind it? What is its significance? What did it really mean? What was the person and work of Christ for the salvation of those who believe? What was this about? So two attributes of God that caused the atonement. One attribute of this is his love. We're told in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The the result, the purpose of his giving his only son was so that whoever believes would have eternal life. Love in itself, we're told in 1 John, flows from God. Everything that we love about this world, that is love, is there because God made this world. We don't look at God and say, oh, he's this, he's that, he's that. Well, how would we describe that? Well, I would describe that as love. Okay, and we put that tag on God. No, God shows us what love is. Because as 1 John says, God is love. Love Flows from his being. And it's because of that love that he chose to atone for our sins. The second of these attributes is his justice. And this is a really neat two verses here. And I love the way that it's summed up. Romans 3, 25 through 26. And we're we're just moving through verses of scripture because we're approaching the atonement again from what is the theology behind it. So this is is different than we typically move through a single passage of Scripture here at Harvest. We're we're kind of moving back and forth a little bit here this morning. Romans 3.25-26 tells us this. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, He left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, meaning when he did, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I love that statement. So that he could both be just, but yet justify us. The term justify is a legal term. If somebody were standing before a judge and that judge was to decide, is this person innocent or guilty? And when the person said, and if the judge, if he were a perfect judge and knew everything about the situation, and for him to say innocent and, and hit the gavel then it's a a statement that this person is completely pure and innocent and unreproachable, without blame, that no one could blame them of anything. And that term means justified, actually declared righteous. So how is it that God could be a just judge and have a sinner standing before them, and both be just and declare righteous, that sinner. And that's what is explained in verse one. God presented Christ as a sacrifice as atonement. through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance, in his forbearance. He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he might both be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. It was his attribute of justice and his attribute of love that caused the need for Christ to be sacrificed. But why Christ? Why not someone else? And we'll be looking at that. But this, The sacrifice to, of Christ allows us to have a relationship with God without soiling His righteousness and His justice. It allows Him to declare us as righteous and yet still be a just judge of all mankind. So... Two aspects of the atonement. When we describe this, the aspects of the atonement, think of aspects being like features or features of a face, right? So as we're looking at the atonement of Christ, we're looking at what are the two aspects, what are the two features that we see that make it what it is. These are the works of Christ that made our atonement or the turn, the propitiation, the turning of God's face from being turned away in wrath to being turned away to us and justifying us as righteousness. What are the, the features of the atonement that make this possible? First of aspect of the atonement is this, his life of obedience. The Apostle Paul says this, when, as the Apostle Paul is describing what he could do as a righteous Jew, as one who has kept the whole law as far as was... In his power. He says this. I want to give that all away. And as Philippians 3.9 says. And be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own. That comes from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. So I want to be justified by the father. Declared righteous. Through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God. On the basis of faith. It was God, Christ's living his life righteously, fulfilling a law in all ways. When he comes to be baptized by John the Baptist, and John the Baptist protests, Christ says, this must be done in order for righteousness to be fulfilled. His life in itself was the righteous life that gets credited to us rather than having a righteousness of our own, we get to receive the very righteousness of Christ that He lived out on this earth. A quote from a theologian I read says this, Christ had to live a life of perfect obedience to God in order to earn righteousness for us. So as we just touch on this briefly, it was also his very life of obedience. Romans 5.19 says this, For just as those through the disobedience of the one man, being Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, being Christ, the many will be made righteous. So while we celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ during this resurrection season, really all the rest of the time of the year, we should be just as thankful for the life of Christ that he lived. This life of righteousness that the only reason why God looks at us in righteousness is because Christ earned that righteousness for us by the life that he lived on this earth. My record of obedience is to say it is... um, Uh, falls short seems uh, paltry. It seems like such an understatement. And I know you, if, if you live in your own skin, you live in your own mind, you know that your record of obedience to God's commands is nothing. It would never stand up. We need a righteousness on our behalf We need a righteousness that God can look at instead of us and say, this is a righteous person. And it's the very righteousness of Christ. It's the very life that he lived that is able to be applied on our behalf. My righteousness could never ever come close to meeting God's righteous standard. We have to rely on both the life and the death of Christ in order to act on our behalf. I realize this is like, man, some of you guys are kind of like, oh, we're just going through a bunch of theology today. But I want you to kind of understand, it's coming in as your new pastor and stuff, it's like, okay, let's take this first resurrection season and let's start with some good level ground of understanding why did this happen? Why did it take place? Why was it necessary? Why was it important? So the second aspect of his atonement is in his suffering. And this is where we're going to spend the most of our time and the rest of our time as we look here. Maybe not the most of our time, but the rest of our time for sure. The second aspect of the atonement of Christ that acts on our behalf is in his suffering. Jesus certainly suffered through his life, as we do. I don't know about you, but... I'm tired of hearing about one more loved one with cancer. I'm kind of like, okay, God, shut off the spigot. <laughs> you know, just even last night, uh, another friend of ours from Rapid City comes across Facebook, has cancer. And and it's like, Lord, is it just going to keep getting... Well, we know it's going to keep getting worse and worse, but is cancer part of that? I mean, you know... it. But it means something to me that Jesus came and suffered as we do. Hebrews tells us that he became a high priest that was made perfect as a high priest through his sufferings, perfect for us, to be able to represent us, to be one of us. It tells us that he was actually... Tempted in all things just as we are and without sin. And this was a part of him being a perfect savior for us. That he suffered throughout his life just as we do. And that's an aspect of his atonement. This is an important part of it. But today we look specifically at his sufferings around the crucifixion. And first in his physical pain and death. Does it ever seem to you that the gospel writers, when it comes to Christ's crucifixion, I mean, the book of John, half of it deals with the passion week of Christ. And it leads to this pinnacle of that and says, and they crucified him. Does that ever seem odd to you? I think there's a a few reasons for that. One, they all knew. All of the readers knew. All in the Roman world where these letters would have gone out to knew when they say, and they crucified him. They knew what that meant. And they had no need to go into detail. I think, I think it says something that if you turn to Philippians 2. As Paul is describing the distance that Christ came from sitting on his throne to be submitting himself under God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and then being made in human likeness, and humbling himself, it says something that along that line of of humbling of Christ, one after another of levels of that, that in verse 8 it says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. And then it adds another level below that even. Even death on a cross. It was more. It was a deeper level beyond even Christ who went from his throne in heaven to allowing us to kill him. To then say, even death on a cross. The crucifixion of Christ in itself was so significant to those early readers that all the Gospel writers had to say was, and they crucified it. But for us, we don't necessarily know what all that entails. It's, it, it doesn't have the same significance for us. So much of preaching is to span the gap between the original hearers or readers and the audience today, who does not have the same cultural connection, have the same experience, the same worldview that went on with that. In crucifixion, the arms would have been outstretched to a point of tension. And there was a reason for this. Nails would have been placed between the bones in the wrist that would have separated the ligaments enough to make passage for the nail, but the ligaments then would have held the wrist tight enough that the body would hold on to the nail. A, a nail then would have been put through the ankle bones above the feet, either one on top of the other or it would have been on the sides of the cross and put through. The majority of the weight though would have been supported by the arms. At that point of being raised up and dropped into the hole or the, or the cross being raised up onto the center support, it would have begun a negotiation of life and death for the victim there on the cross. They would have by moment by moment begun to negotiate between the air that they needed to keep living and the excruciating pain that every breath brought. Breathing would have meant excruciating pain on the wrists and the ankles as they could not expand their chest cavity to the degree that they needed to to get the oxygen that they needed in the hanging position. They would have had to push up on the the ankles and pull with the wrists in order to get a breath every time that they breathed. This is part, this was designed to stretch out death as long as humanly possible. And as I said, for the victim to have to make this negotiation between every breath. A Seneca, a first century historian, described crucifixion as drawing the breath of life amid long drawn out agony. Death came after slowly suffocating over the course of hours or even days until the victim just simply had no more strength to get that last breath in their lungs. Jesus' final moment, it was surprising that he was dead, actually, but his final moment was probably a massive heart attack which amounted to the explosion of his heart. And a cardiologist has written on this and explained that that's the only reason why the account would have described blood and water flowing from his chest cavity when it was pierced. But you know, more terrible than his pain and suffering would have been his bearing the weight of our sin. And this was just as much a part of his suffering. Being perfect and holy God, Jesus hated sin. He saw, he sees sin as defiling the creation that he, the Father, and the Holy Spirit together made and looked at it and said, it is good. And when, they, when, when the triune God says, Something is good, it is undefiled, it is perfect, it is uh, unmatchable by anything else. Scripture is clear that our very sins were put on the person of Christ. Isaiah predicted, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. He also proclaims, he bore our sin, he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. John the Baptist described him as we mentioned before, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had known no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might then become the very righteousness of God. That idea, again, of when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah, 9, uh, Hebrews 9.28 says this, So Christ was sacrificed once to take on the sins of the many. Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. So the very God who looked at his creation said, it is good, and watched it get defiled with sin. God the Son hates sin just as much as God the Father. He then bore the sins, past, present, and future, of all of humanity on the cross. But as bad as his physical pain... And suffering, as bad as bearing the sins of all of us were, it's nothing compared to the abandonment that he felt, that he experienced by those that he loved. Shortly after asking his disciples to pray with them, they were deserting him. Peter, even within eyeshot of Christ, denied that he even knew him. And one of the gospel writers put, describes that at that very moment of the third denial, that Peter, that Jesus and Peter's eyes met. You know, when we are rejected, most of the time we bear some sort of responsibility with it. I mean, even if it's just, you know, our personality or something like that. Jesus was the greatest friend to his disciples. He certainly, he never deserved to be abandoned. But I think that there's reason behind it why John gives this testimony of having loved his own who were with him, who were in the world. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I think that John was thinking about how they had all deserted him. He was also abandoned by the Father and by the Holy Spirit. Wayne Grudem Grudem writes this, But far worse than desertion by even the closest of human friends was the fact that Jesus was deprived of the closeness to the Father that had been the deepest joy of his heart. For all his eternal life, when Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He showed that he was finally cut off from the sweet fellowship with his heavenly Father that had been the unfailing source of his inward strength and the element of greatest joy in a life filled with sorrow. As Jesus bore our sins on the cross, he was abandoned by his heavenly Father, who, as Habakkuk one thirteen says, describes the Father as, His eyes are too pure to look upon evil. So Jesus was alone when he faced his greatest suffering. But yet worse than his physical suffering, worse than bearing our sins, worse than his abandonment, was in the fact that he bore the weight. He bore the very wrath of God For all of us, for all of the sins of all of mankind, for all of time, he bore that wrath. Romans 3.25 again says, and we looked at this earlier, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God had not... He he does not forgive sin without its punishment taking place. And that punishment was poured out on Christ. And so we... I don't know if you've ever kind of wondered about this. what, What was the deal with Old Testament sacrifice... And were these people being forgiven because of this sacrifice? Were they receiving grace because of the sacrifice? Was this sacrifice making God happy toward them or something like that? And this verse gives us an understanding of that, that in his forbearance, he had left their sins beforehand unpunished, and he was storing up the punishment for all of their sins by by sacrificing the shedding of blood in the way that God had prescribed they were participating in the forgiveness that would be coming from Christ they were associating themselves with that forgiveness the indignation and vengeance of the Trinity had been stored up for all of that time. And scripture describes that in God's eternality, he was also storing up somehow even the sins that we will commit tomorrow to be poured out on Christ. The punishment of sins past, present, and future still needed to be dealt out on someone. If you could imagine all of the oceans of the world being filled with the wrath of God. It it would be a swirling, boiling, searing mass of indignation and offense. Imagine there being a plug at the deepest point and that plug being pulled, and the whirlpool of this spiraling flow of the indignation and wrath of God flowing from these oceans through that hole. Further, imagine there that Jesus is receiving all of that flow of the wrath of God, the righteous and rightful wrath of God for all of the sins of mankind of all of time, flowing out, and Jesus then is receiving that crushing flow of burning wrath. Scripture describes people cowering at the presence of God, and this is when he sits satisfied and in his glory. What about when he's pouring out his wrath of all mankind, on all mankind or for all mankind and all, toward all of our sin? He, what about in the moment in the moment when he is pouring out every bit of that wrath. It is only God himself that could receive that, that could absorb that. That Jesus, imagine absorbing that like an almighty, infinite sponge. And that's part of what it means to be infinite God. This is what Jesus meant when he said, don't you see that the Messiah had to suffer? It could be no one else. Jesus being God himself meant that it was applicable for us. He being all powerful, powerful and eternal and infinite meant that his sacrifice, his payment could last, could, could be effective for all of mankind, for all of time that it wasn't bound to just that moment. This required hour upon hour of torment. Jesus was likely unaware of just how long it was going to have to take. We could assume that bearing the guilt of sin for every moment of human history would take a long time. It was in this midst of torment that Jesus asked, Father, why have you forsaken me? Again, a writer says this, Then at last, Jesus knew his suffering was nearing completion. He knew he had consciously borne all wrath of the Father against our sins, for God's anger had abated, and the awful heaviness of sin was being removed. He knew that all that remained was to yield up his spirit to his heavenly father and die. With a shout of victory, Jesus cried out, it is finished. Then with a loud voice once more, he cried out, father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he voluntarily gave up the life that no one else could take from him. And he died. As Isaiah had predicted, he poured out his soul to death and bore the sins of many. And also God the Father saw the fruit of the travail of his soul and was satisfied, according to Isaiah 53, 11. This was significant for me to read and realize that there was reason for each statement that Jesus made. It began with, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. And after hours of torment, it was, why have you forsaken me, Father? And when that was coming to completion, it was, it is finished. And then completing with, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It was the first time in reading this to realize that he was giving for us a um, on-scene report of just what was going on for us. And that's amazing to me. And I hope it impacts you as well. We get to celebrate the resurrection next week, and we get to celebrate it every day. And there was significance to why did the resurrection have to take place. And there's significance to the resurrection when sharing the gospel. I want you to know that. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, This that we have received and we have delivered to you of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried and that he was raised again according to the scripture. And we should share just as much the resurrection of Christ as we do the death of Christ. And we get to look at that next week. I want to share with you a see. A, it's kind of hard to see here. This is on LaSalle Boulevard uh, between uh, Moody Bible Institute, where I went to school, and um, say, if you were walking north, um, this is probably about the intersection of LaSalle and Division on the north side of Chicago on your way to, say, Moody Church, between uh, the school, Moody, and Moody Church. And if you can see here that there's a crucifix on the outside of this church. I don't remember what type of church it was, some uh, more liturgical, um, Episcopal or, um, or Catholic, I believe. I walked by this so many times for years until I stopped one day and just read what it said here at the bottom. And I found these pictures uh, online. It says, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? And I think there's a reason why they put it right there on the sidewalk. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? First, I want to tell you, if you've never received Christ as your Savior, I hope this morning represents for you the significance of what was done. And also the significance of the idea. This is why, if there's one question we are asked when we stand before the Lord, it would be, What did you do with my son? What did you do with my son? It's why when scripture says anyone who does not believe that Christ is the Savior is saying to God, you're a liar. God's relationship to us as either our judge or our father hinges on what we do with this one singular moment of history of the offering of his son for the sins of the world and he has one question for us what did you do with my son did you receive what he paid for for you did you accept it did you make it your own or did you walk away And I think that's part of what's signified in this statement. This question, is it nothing for you, all ye who walk by here? If you know Christ as your Savior, I hope that this week is, is a meditation for you. That's a part of why we're going over this today. I hope it's a meditation for you in just what was done on our behalf. So much of what we sing is in response to all that God has done. But in that singular moment, it's all summed up. Because we were purchased, we were bought with precious blood. Let's bow our heads, and after we pray, the worship team will come up and lead us in a few songs. Father God, You orchestrated the greatest payment that could ever be paid, the greatest ransom that could ever be given, knowing that you would have to turn your eyes away from your son because he bore our sin. Thank you. Lord, if we had eternity to thank you, it would not be enough. Because we're not a part of you, we could never know in that eternal moment the pain that was felt among the members of the Trinity. But Lord, we thank you. Lord, I do pray that you would draw our minds to the sacrifice of Christ that was made for us. Lord, I pray that every moment of our lives would be colored by this, that we couldn't look at a single instance, that we couldn't look at a single experience, or we couldn't look at a single situation and it not be colored by the death and resurrection of Christ on our behalf. Lord, if anyone here this morning is passing by So great a sacrifice that was made is passing by, so great an offering that is being offered, a present that's being given, and it's nothing to them. I pray, Lord God, that you would break through their blindness. I pray, Lord God, that you would shake them loose of the chains that keep them from seeing how valuable this is, how important this is, how it It cannot be denied that this is the greatest gift ever given. I pray, Lord God, that they would see the insanity of turning away from this. I pray, Lord God, that you'd bring them to their knees to receive your payment for their sins and you as their father. Lord, to say it one more time is still so far short, but thank you.